This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The world of work is subject to some of the worst pieces of advice in almost any area of contemporary life, right? And the bad advice is make a 10-year plan. You don't need a 10-year plan because life is going to interrupt you multiple times. Welcome to The Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast for MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm James Rogers, a financial columnist at MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. James, congratulations on the first few episodes of the podcast. How are you enjoying the new gig? I'm really enjoying it, Stephanie. I'm looking forward to working on lots more episodes. Well, this week, we've actually got work on the brain. More specifically, we're taking a look at a new book that offers a roadmap to being happier with your job. I sat down with Bruce Feiler, author of The Search, Finding Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. We talked about why some Americans are unhappy at work, the assumptions about careers that are holding us back, and how we've arrived at what he calls the fourth biggest change in the history of work. So, Bruce, in your book, you say America is at a turning point when it comes to work. Can you talk a little bit about why that is? I think the why has to do with a couple of things. Number one is a generational change in the makeup of the workplace. So now a majority of workers are millennials and Gen Z. And so I think that this new generation of workers, younger, more female, more diverse, is changing a fundamental aspect about work. And that is they're searching less merely for work and more for work with meaning. Six in 10 millennials say that work with meaning is more important to them than their boomer parents. By every metric, Gallup has found, Deloitte has found that this new population of workers values balance, well-meaning, purpose, and a work life that meets their needs at any given moment. And so I think that the generational change has been, let's just say, advanced or kind of given more permission to do this because there's a larger change going on in the culture, which is people are more willing to walk away from a job. 50 million Americans quit a job in the last year. That's not laid off. That's not fired. That's walked away. That's a third of the workforce. And this idea of well-being has not been in the heart of the conversation about work. And this affects workers, organizations that hope to recruit and retain them, and all of us who care about what the role that work plays in contemporary life. You're not just interpreting data and you're not just imagining what people might be feeling. You actually spend years and you talk to hundreds of people. 
Can you talk about how you found those people and tell us what your work story project is? I'm the kind of person who stumbled early into my life into figuring out what I wanted to do. I had some success, I got married and I had children. This I now think of as a conventional linear life. I had that kind of the upward trajectory that we all fantasize about. But then in my 40s, my life blew up. First, I got cancer as a 43-year-old man and the father of three-year-old identical twin daughters. I had financial troubles. And in every way imaginable, this was a crisis in my life. I discovered that lots of people go through these periods where their life is upended in some way. And I wanted to do something to help. So what I did was I had spent the last six years crisscrossing the country, collecting what has now become 400 deep, in-depth life stories of people from all walks of life, all income backgrounds, all 50 states. It's 1,500 hours of interviews and 10,000 pages of transcripts. And then with a team of 12, I have analyzed this data trying to understand how it is that we find meaning and purpose in times of change. You know, from doing all these interviews, you came up with what you call three lies, lies about work. And I want to talk about each one of them. Could you start with the lie that you say is that people have a career? How is that a lie? It turns out that the career is a relatively recent invention. For most of human history, no one used this word because there was no need for it. People lived where they worked and worked where they lived. What happened is at the height of the industrial age in the late 19th century, a third of Americans leave their job. They go from rural areas to cities and then tens of millions of more join them from overseas. So suddenly you have all these people in cities looking for work and you have all these new type of companies who need workers. So the idea of a career is invented by a guy named Frank Parsons in Boston. Frank Parsons himself actually had lots of different jobs. He was an engineer, he was a writer, but he realized and he was living at this moment in the progressive era when the idea of improvement and bettering society was all through life. And he opened the first career counseling center. And within several years, every college and every secondary school had the idea of career counseling. So he in effect invented this idea of the career. But once this happened, we needed a whole different set of language. And people then began as we moved from an industrial age to a knowledge age of workers to change jobs. So you needed a way to normalize that. And that's where the resume became normalized. Essentially, nobody used this before the 1950s. And within about 10 years, you had dozens of books about how to write resumes, tips on how to write resumes. And by the way, the resume is the visual manifestation of this linear idea. Again, each job is supposed to be better, successive than the last. And what that does is it completely stigmatizes somebody who wants to take time off and work with family, who wants to go start a company that may not work, who wants to give back for a time. All of that was viewed as being deviant in some way. To get off the track was to completely upend your life, and it was completely inappropriate. Think about the women that this involved. I mean, nothing has squandered more human potential. So today we have much more nonlinear lives, but we are still haunted by the ghost of linearity that defined work only for the last hundred years, but completely for the last hundred years. The second lie, according to Filer, is that you have a path. 
Instead, he says our work lives often get shaken up by moments of disruption, reinvention, and reevaluation. Filer even has a name for these episodes, workquakes. So my data show that we go through 20 what I call work quakes in the course of your lives. That's one on average every two and a half years. And what's interesting about this is that women go through work quakes more frequently than men. Xers go through them more frequently than boomers, millennials more than Xers. And the same is proving true with Gen Z. So that means their number is only going to grow over time. But here's what I think is actually the signature piece of data from the search. About 45% of these workquakes begin in the workplace, right? You have a conflict with your boss, your company shuts down, you get laid off. Something happens in the workplace that leads to a change in your work life. But that means more than half, 55% begin outside the workplace. Something happens in your family, something happens with your health, something happens and you just change your mind about what you want to do. So what this means is that in the battle between life and work, life is playing a greater role in the decisions around work. You asked me, why is this a big change? Because that is scrambling traditional rules of economics, where we act for a series of rational reasons and everything that we do, we're doing for financial benefit or these other things that people have tried to measure and insist on for decades. That is going away. The values and the metrics and the decisions about success are being shaped by a whole new set of influences. We're not counting and we're not capturing, which is why we're missing the change that's going on around work. The last lie that you talk about is the lie that people have a job. And you say, we don't have a job. Almost everybody has multiple jobs. And so we have this job that we think of as our main job, our occupation, the thing we mostly get paid to do. But then a lot of people have side jobs or what sometimes are referred to as a hustle, side hustle. So I'm wondering, can you have too many jobs? And can you talk a little bit about what it means to bear the sort of weight of all of these different jobs that people have today? I think that on the surface, this sounds like the most absurd lie. You have a job? Of course I have a job, right? How else do I pay my bills? But that's in fact not how we live today. You mentioned a main job, but what's interesting about a main job is that by some metrics, fewer than half of us even have a main job anymore, okay? So that's the first kind of job. The second is a care job. Two thirds of us have that, that it involves caring for children or aging relatives. This has been coming up in sort of economic circles for decades that we should start counting these, this kind of unpaid domestic labor as a job. And certainly when you talk to new parents, that's how they talk about, okay, your job is bath time and my job is bedtime. They think of it as jobs in the kind of the old fashioned sense of the word as a task or responsibility. Three quarters of us have a side job. I prefer side job to side hustle because hustle has a kind of negative connotation, but in fact, it can be very meaningful to us. But then there are these two new kinds of jobs that people have. The first is what I call a hope job, which is something that you do that you hope leads to something else, right? Like oh, selling pickles at the farmer's market or writing a screenplay or you know making jewelry that you sell on Etsy. And for a lot of these jobs, we actually pay out of pocket for the privilege. I'm gonna pay hoping it leads to something else. 
And then there's a, what I call a ghost job, which is an invisible time suck that feels like a job, like battling self-doubt or discrimination, struggling with mental health or sobriety or, you know, d discrimination or bigotry, the kind of microaggressions that many people feel. And I, I totally get and I'm sympathetic to the nature of your question, like, isn't this a burden to have too many jobs? But I think that the way people experience it is slightly different. What is not negotiable to people is that they have meaning out of work. So perhaps they have a main job that they do for salary or benefits. And so they still want meaning. So they use their side job or hope job to get that meaning. Or maybe they have a main job and they start a side job and it begins to work. You can get on and off the path. You can do what you want. And what's been missing is a frame for talking about work that gives you permission to make these changes and to do what it is that you want to do at any given moment. Coming up, work today doesn't look like it used to. How can we use our new circumstances to find more meaning? That's after the break. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Welcome back to The Best New Ideas in Money. Before the break, we spoke with Bruce Feiler, author of a new book called The Search. He talks about what he describes as the three lies we tell ourselves about work and how they're limiting our potential happiness. But according to Feiler, historically, we're now at an inflection point that could allow us to shake up our assumptions about our careers. I see what's going on is the fourth biggest change in the history of work, right? So if the first biggest change when we went from hunting and gathering and wandering to agricultural and settled work, okay, that happened 12,000 years ago. Then the second biggest change is when we went from agriculture to industrial in the late 19th century. The third, when we went from industrial to office or knowledge work. And I think in the 21st century, we are seeing the next big change as we move from a knowledge to a networked world and into a world where we're going to have to begin to calculate kind of metrics involving identity, meaning, self-worth, fulfillment. The pandemic and the shift to remote work feels to me like one of the biggest work quakes, as you call them, in my lifetime. Does the data tell a really clear story about whether working from home tends to 
enhance our work-life balance? Does it depend on the individual person? Can you talk about that a little bit? First of all, it accelerated a trend that had been building for a while, the quit rate, right, which is the number of people who quit every month. So I think it accelerated that trend. But I think what it obliterated and what is likely to be a generational change is that the idea that the employer can completely dictate the terms of employment. Certainly for knowledge workers, we're seeing now day in and day out company after company, come back to work two days. Okay, how about three days? A negotiation where the worker is basically reclaiming more power. My favorite metric of this is that golf course bookings in the afternoons have boomed. This is fascinating because it's showing that I want balance. I can go play around the golf and then come back and do my work in the evening. So there's a kind of flexibility. And this is something that women have been, you know, clamoring for for years, but the pandemic has made it a reality. And it has basically allowed us to break out of the iron cage that you must always do work in a certain place, in a certain way, and basically sublimate your own definition of what is a well-balanced life for the needs of other people. So let's say you reach the point in life where you start questioning whether you're in the right job. Maybe you're undergoing one of these work quakes and you're rethinking everything. And you say there are six questions that you have to ask yourself when you're in a work quake. And they're the big kind of who, what, where, when, and why questions. It feels to me like an introspective exercise where you just kind of sit down with yourself and interrogate these kinds of questions. I'm wondering if that's the right read. And also, is there value in bringing others into the process, friends, family, coworkers, or is it really something that you need to do just with yourself? Since the birth of this country, we have been telling a singular story of success, and it's all about climbing up by your bootstraps, rags to riches, bigger office, higher floor, greater salary, more benefits. The number one thing that I learned in the course of talking to hundreds of people who are happy at work is that the people who find most meaning and are most fulfilled in what they do, they don't climb, they dig. They perform what I call a meaning audit. They do personal archaeology on themselves. They go, in effect, on a treasure hunt in their own life, trying to identify the ideas and upsides and downsides of work they learned from their parents, their earliest role models, the, what I call their toothache, this problem that's been nagging at them since they were young, the story that they have been trying to tell about work their whole lives that no one has encouraged them or given them permission to tell. The heart of the search is these questions, who, what, when, where, why. Actually, I call it now 21 questions to find work you love. A series of things that you're doing to go back in your past, look at your present, shape your story for the future. And one of those questions is, the best advice I have for myself right now is blank. And when I ask people, you know, did you get advice? <laughs> who was it from? And what was the advice you found most helpful? First of all, who the advice came from was interesting because it was mostly colleagues, professionals, and friends. Family came in last. 
which is fascinating. Either the family is not giving good advice because they have stakes or we discount what our family members tell us. But the advice they found most helpful, listen to yourself. Three quarters of people say that they appreciated the advice that said, do what you already know that you should be doing. Listen to your inner voice. So it turns out we don't need a kick in the pants or a slap in the face. We need a pat on the back. You know the story that you want to tell. What you need in many cases is permission to believe that that is a valid story and that this is the right thing to do. Filer cautions against turning exclusively to the tried and true methods many associate with looking for new work. We talk a lot about how to find a job. Brush up your resume or update your LinkedIn profile. The advice hasn't really changed in 50 years. The problem is, is if you start with the how, that you're likely to succeed. <laughs> you know, in a world in which the unemployment rates in the 3%, the tightest labor market in 80 years, you're going to find a job. The problem is in two and a half years, you're going to be unhappy again, because the most important thing to do is to first ask yourself, what is the kind of work that you want to be doing? That is much more important than going to some agency that's going to match you up with some job. You have to do the internal work first. You have to identify your meaning and your purpose in order to be able to find it and integrate it into your life. So we often hear a lot of conflicting advice around this time of year. It's graduation season. So some people say it's important to follow your passion, but other people say, no, young people should be looking for economic security as they start their careers. What do you say to that? 3,000 years ago, the most influential story about work ever written was written down for the first time. And it's the story of what happened in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, what was their punishment? Their punishment was work. And beginning at that time, and in every culture for the last 30 centuries, we have talked about work as if it must be, should be, is designed to be miserable. The great moment that we are in today is that we do not have to buy into that. It doesn't mean that everybody is going to run an avocado farm or become a superstar podcaster or make jewelry that will be worn on the met red carpet. But what it does mean is that we are free to define work in a way that fits our own life at every moment in our life. Thanks for listening to The Best New Ideas in Money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Bruce Feiler. To learn more about new ideas in work, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm James Rogers. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from Market. The producers are Michael McDowell, Meta Lutzhoft, and Katie Ferguson, who also mixed this episode. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. Nathan Vardy was our newsroom editor on this episode. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University, and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.